You're listening to the podcast of Dr. Chip Bennett. Please consider following us and giving us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Hey, so welcome again. Um, here with uh, Dr. Warren Gage. I'm Chip Bennett. We're uh, we're going through the book of Revelation, and I hope this has been enjoyable to you. I know it's been sort of fun to do this. And um, we left off last time. We were going through um, the chiastic pattern of John and Revelation, sort of the X is what we had, we had talked about. And we left off last time um, in chapter 5, verse 44 of the book of John and 18.7 in the book of Revelation. And once again, we're, we're moving from chapter 1 of John through the end, but we're coming backwards from Revelation to the beginning here. Or you could look at it as going from 1 to, to the there, end, however you want to look at different it. Different modeling. Correct. You know, we're actually reading this way. Yes. Yeah, and, and and they meet in the center, and then they continue on. But uh, been been great. So let's uh, let's hit here um, in uh, chapter six, uh, three and ten. It says, "And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples in number about five thousand. And uh, in chapter fourteen, verse one of Revelation, you've got, "I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him one hundred and forty-four thousand." Seems to be there's a connection there. Yeah, and I'm, you know, again, I haven't explored all of it, but um, seems like there's a connection. And the same with six to nineteen. So I also notice the verse uh, addresses are bolded, so the language there seems yes. to be unique. In six nineteen, when they had rowed about twenty five or thirty furlongs, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. That seems to correspond. Uh, and then that would be its context, yeah. part of its context with 1420 in Revelation and 15.2. 1,600 furlongs, I saw the ones who overcame the beast standing on the sea. Mm-hmm. Once again, though, the language, you know, when you're reading furlongs, you're reading, you know, when you're looking at things from a literary standpoint, um, when you start to see similar vocabulary, and I mean, you could say, well, furlongs are stuff, but, but there's so many things that are used here that, that really do start to be on, they move beyond just coincidence and start to become, hold on, there's some real intentional stuff. Well, with Jesus walking on the sea in yeah. the gospel and then the, the ones who are delivered from the beast standing on yeah. the sea, I, I think yeah. there's something, there is something there going on that sure. you wouldn't ordinarily put together unless there was a pattern. Sure. And the no. pattern seems to be compelling and exactly what that means. I think that if you take John and Revelation as one book, that up, upheaves all the commentaries. Sure Nobody's does. been approaching it this way. Yeah. So it's calling for a lot of different commentary. Sure it is. Because it's recontextualizing sure. the whole That's right. of these two books and then saying that they're organic. Right. And those who, those who are listening have to judge whether or not the data is compelling enough to go, hold on, maybe this is a whole other way to look at it. You know, we, we, we may be convinced of that, but that's why we're doing this, is to say, hey, we think that there's, there's a better way to look at this in the, in the aggregate. Absolutely. In, in, seven, in, in chapter 7 of John's Gospel, in verse 12 and 47, we hear that some complain concerning Jesus. He deceives the multitude. The Pharisees challenge the officers, are you deceived also? And that is thinking that they may have listened to Jesus that's exactly right. and fallen into his deception. Exactly. The idea that Jesus is the deceiver is, is interesting because in Revelation 13, 14, it's the beast who deceives those who dwell yeah. on the earth. Now, what that would juxtapose is the beast with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And obviously, um, that's a point of comparison and contrast. Right. 
So, but what we find is there's a pattern with the beast because the beast imitates what Christ does. He resurrects. I mean, they're all you have. You have a Trinity, obviously, right. in an anti-Trinity, in an anti-Trinity. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think where we got to get out of our shell here is we got to get out of the theology realm. We got to get out of the biblical realm. Both those are great and have their places, but this is a literary realm. And when you're writing literature, you tend to have things that contrast to draw attention. And that's what we're saying here. These books read together are really tying in things that don't seem to be coincidental when you're definitely looking at it from a, from a literary concept and from common authorship. You know, and, and I mean, I think these are compelling. Like you wouldn't, if somebody goes, well, I wouldn't normally have seen that. No, you wouldn't. And, and you wouldn't have normally seen reading Luke with Acts. You wouldn't have seen the stuff that, that, that people see until you start to go to school and you study and you read and you, and you, you start to, 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 you know, this is not something that, that it, it takes some time, you know, and I think the scriptures tell us that, you know, we should study, we, we, we should apply ourselves. And, and I think that, you know, for someone who goes, well, you know, I would have never seen this by, by, by nature, um, th that's okay. Like th th there's an okayness to not seeing this, but I think that when you start to see that Luke and Acts can be written together and you see the common authorship and the common themes and the juxtapositions of Paul and Jesus and Peter and Paul and the way the writer is Luke is is riffing on that. I, I think that it's pretty compelling here that this is the same guy writing and he's riffing on this stuff in in, in ways that that really make us think more so than just reading the gospel or revelation on its own. It, it's really gesturing at some stuff that in, in some of the stuff here that we're saying, hey we maybe haven't ferreted out every little thing here, but there seems to be connections here. This way of reading is normative to the way that documents were That's, written in the Mediterranean yes. around the first century. Yes. And so what we have in modern modernity, we've forgotten how to read these ancient sure. documents. There's sure. a presumption that the more ancient the document, the more simple it is. And actually it's reversed. <laughs> Uh, in modernity, we, we have linear logical reading and that's it. Yeah. And, and then we've got textual criticism that largely has uh, been used as a weapon, I think, I think uh, uh, erroneously, because what, what a, a document like this and some other patterns that we're going to talk about, it, it destroys the whole basis of textual criticism yes. because God has given us a way of determining what is correct and what is appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, the ending of Mark is altogether chiastically in many chiasms tied together with the part that's uncontested. This, the, the question of the, the pericope of adultery in John A, mm -hmm. that, that is exactly where it ought to be. It's, 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 there are all kinds of overlapping chiasms that demonstrate mm -hmm. that fact, sure. but those are accepted by most of modernity. I mean, they just rip the text to pieces. Yep. Um, there are a few verses I found that I can't find a sure. chiastic connection, sure. and perhaps yeah. those, you know, yeah. verses that need to be expired. Neither one of us are insinuating that we shouldn't use the best methods, that we shouldn't look at the text, we shouldn't criticize things, that we shouldn't be open-minded and all that stuff, but that when we look at Scripture and we're reading it through the lens of a chiastic writing, some of the stuff that normally is pulled out doesn't seem like it needs to be because mm -hmm. as, as we will discuss, I mean, that the, the lady caught in adultery um, parallels the book of Revelation.
you know, and, and, and that's and, the illustration, and, and that's and that's a uh, um, you know, it, it it makes you go, well, hold on, maybe this, you know, is you know, and of course, I have I have a particular bent anyway that if the text, so you know, people ask, well, what happens if we found you know another Corinthians book because we assume that Paul wrote more than two books to the Corinthians. What if they dug it up? Well, it'd be great. We'd love to have it, but it couldn't be scripture in the sense of the 66 books because one of the limitations would be that it didn't benefit all of Christians for the history of the church. One of my takes is, is that John 7:53 through 8:11 has benefited every Christian from, from start to finish, basically. And so now we're going to pull it out when every Christian has used that. Sermons have been preached on it. I, I'm, I'm really reluctant to pull those texts, even, even if you could make a case to me that they were not in the original manuscripts, it, the fact that they've been kept Recognized for all the years by the church, for, by the church ma- makes me go, ah, God may wanted to have. Mm-hmm. And, and then, of course, the, the, the sweetest thing would be, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but if they did find an older text, and all of a sudden it was in it, they would go, oh, well, now we've... And so that's why I want to say, just be cautious when we're pulling stuff and y- yanking stuff, especially stuff that's been used by the, the greats. I mean, there's there's all kinds of church father sermons on the woman kind of adultery. There's, there's stuff that's being used. You can, you can see where great people have talked about these, you know, um, things for, you know, hundreds and thousands of years. So it, it, it makes me a little reluctant, is all I'm saying. Um, in 8.3... Um, which parallels with Revelation 12, 4. It says, and the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman. Now here we are. Okay, mm-hmm. caught in adultery. This happened to be the, we're right at the right place here. Caught in adultery and stood her in the midst and said to him, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now that's 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 important here because the law justly required her to be mm-hmm. stoned. And then we have here in uh, um, 12, 4. And the dragon stood before the woman so that he might devour. Yep. And so the dragon is being corresponded to the scribes and Pharisees mm-hmm. by that connection. That's right. The question, again, if you read a pericope of an adultery, the mm-hmm. adult woman caught in adultery, the question there is, will Jesus uphold the law of Moses? Mm-hmm. That's the real question. That's right. You know? And they're right on that. I mean, there's she's they've got That's more right. than two or three witnesses. Right. She was caught in the act. I mean, she's in flagrante, justly accused. And so the question that remains is he, he pardons her. So the, and if you read the gospel alone, the question is, well, how does he uphold the law of Moses? I mean, doesn't he, he comes not to abolish, but to fulfill. Mm-hmm. And there is an adulterer there. It's mm-hmm. some, something, somehow there yep. has to be a fulfillment of that. That's right. What happened, the, the dilemma, and see, that pericope, I think it's important to talk about this, is showing us that uh, it's putting, us, putting Jesus in the place of Solomon, who has to judge his, his wisdom. When God promises to give Solomon wisdom. The next account in the Bible is the demonstration of that wisdom right. as he has two women, both right. of whom are prostitutes, right? right? Yep. Quarreling over the living son. Exactly right. And so Solomon shows his wisdom by revealing the secrets of the heart. You've got a she said, she said, There's no, there are no witnesses, there's no way to reveal that. Solomon is in his wisdom in an inquisitional format brings out the truth so that everybody knows who the real mother is. Well, Jesus is not given the wisdom of God. Paul says he is the wisdom of That's God. That's right, absolutely. So John is showing us, here's another situation. Mm-hmm. And so to read that story correctly, here is Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, and he has to choose between the accusers and the woman. 
-hmm. Now, the woman is clearly guilty of adultery and deserves to be stoned. But what about the accusers? Mm -hmm. They are using her. And the text says they're trying to trap him. They're trying to catch him. The reality is this is Jesus between two whorish people. The woman who is a whore, but also the religious leaders. And Jesus recognizes that their heart is whorish. He's judging between two whores. That's the connection with the Solomonic Mm -hmm. uh, passage. And so what happens is, um, I mean, you can imagine this poor woman. She's been rushed off, probably barely even dressed and brought to the temple and then put before Jesus. I mean, they have no regard for her. Nor do they really have regard for the law because if they would, they would have brought the man. The man, but he's gone. They just, all they want to do is trap Jesus. They have no regard for this woman. Jesus has compassion on her, but he recognizes he's got to uphold the law of Moses. So how does he do that? Well, he can, he can pardon the woman because he's going to take her punishment upon himself. And he says, where are your accusers? And she said, there are none. They've, he's cast them out of the temple. He says, well, neither do I accuse you. He could accuse her, but he doesn't because he has to pay that debt and he's going to. So he says, go and sin no more, which I think empowers her not to leave that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I think that's the effect of it. But we still have the accusers. Mm-hmm. And what do we do with them? These are the temple police, the temple, right. the, the self-appointed uh, Pharisees and Sadducees in the temple. When you read Revelation 16, what happens is, I mean, the the, the woman has to be stoned, right? That's mm-hmm. what they say. Right. So, well, the real whore is the temple. And what happens in Revelation 16 God hurls hailstones out of heaven. It's anticipating A.D. 70. Yes. He hurls hailstones out of heaven, and that temple itself is destroyed. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, then we understand he is upholding the law of Moses, both in the atonement that he offers for the woman. Right. And so she's redeemed. Yes. And she's a picture of the bride of Christ. Because he's redeemed a whore, which is com- consistent with this whole whole exactly series, right. inconsistent with John, because well. yeah. John's walking through women. Every, all these women, he's showing yeah. how he's the true Joshua because he rescues the whore, right. the woman sitting at the well. The Samaritan, she's Samaritan, she's foreign, and she's uh, been married five immoral. times and now living yeah. with somebody. Yeah, same pattern of five one one, and the, yep. the seventh one is the true love that she finds. And that's Jesus. Mm-hmm. He meets her at a well, like the patriarchs met, you know, exactly like right. uh, the wife of uh, Isaac was identified Moses at a well. And wife, Jacob, it, Moses' Jacob, wife. Jacob, Moses' wife, Zipporah, yep. at the well of Midian. Yep. There are always these wells elsewhere. So all of that is being invoked. So in John 4, th- let's not forget, we're basically seeing a retelling of, of Jacob at the well because Rachel shows up in the middle of the day, just like this woman does. But Jacob can only love Rachel because she's beautiful and doesn't love Leah because she's she's not as attractive. And I think when she asks the woman at the well, when she says, are you greater than Jacob? I think one of the things that we should intuit is that, yes, Jesus can love the ugly one, which is us. And, and, and can love the, them into beauty. Absolutely. See? I mean, but but that's a Johannine. He's got a, he's got a Johannine imagination. But, but that Johannine theme of the woman at the well, the, the, the bridegroom comes, um, Mary Magdalene at the tomb, it John seven fifty three through eight eleven fits the whole thematic, you know, it, not just it, with Revelation, but it also fe- features the theme of John, which is going all the way through. the The woman caught it, or the woman in the well, asked that question: "Are you greater than our father Jacob?" Now she's identifying with the people of God. Mm-hmm. She tells him, "Our father Jacob." 
even though the Jews wouldn't accept her. But that is a bridal narrative. It's clearly at the well, and it's Jacob's well, mm -hmm. you know, which is to identify. It's not the, the well in Haran, but it is a well that's identified with Jacob, who who met his bride at the well. But like he could only love the lovely and the pure. The answer to that is not given by Jonah, but but it's the question is proposed, and we are intended to answer that question. And the answer that the heart of faith expresses is he is greater because he can love someone that has been caught in this cycle of, right. of, of marriages and is a virtual whore, and that's me. That's right. And that's the, the answer. He, can, he could love, if he could love, if Jesus could love this woman, then he could love so, me. And she's a perfect picture of the bride too because she's both Jew and Gentile. Absolutely. She's the bride that John, Absolutely. that's the, way, the bridal city that he makes uh, the gates of it are the 12 tribes of Israel, but the foundations are the apostles of the nations. Mm -hmm. And so the, the bridal city is a composite of Jew and Gentile. It's a universal city in that sense. Yep. And they're both you know, together. They're right. not separate. Right. This idea of eternal destiny differences, yeah. that's all put aside. There is yeah. no difference in Christ, right. neither Jew nor Gentile. That's right. right? Galatians 3.28. Yeah, so anyway, uh, so we're, we're seeing that these are suggest highly suggestive but what they're doing is there's a consistency of theme going all the way through. The, the other woman that we haven't talked about, and we will, is Mary Magdalene, mm -hmm. who had been uh, pressed by seven demons. Right. And she's given tremendous honor at the end of uh, yeah. in John 20, as we'll, as we'll see. So as We're seeing sort of like, you know, the accusers are cast out of the early temple. Now the accusers here are being cast out of the heavenly temple. We see in eight, chapter 8 of John, um, 6 and 7 and 10, that they said testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Mm -hmm. And Jesus said, let him be the first to cast a stone who is sinless. And hearing this, they began to go out and Jesus said to her, woman, where are your accusers? You can hear the echoes of this in, in, in Revelation 12, 4, 8, and 10, where it says, so that he, the dragon, might devour her child and no place was found for them any longer. And the great dragon was cast down the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And so you can see this accusation, casting, there, there's there's tie-in here, which ends this particular little thing here in, in 11, 4, 8, where he says, if all men believe in him, they will take away our religious leaders, the temple's place. You know, the, And then we see in Revelation 12, 8, there was no place Found for them who follow the dragon. So heaven. Jesus is driving them out of the temple right. here, not yeah. just in in chapter. That's exactly two, right. But he drives them out by asking, you know, only the one that's sinless can cast the stone. That's right. Which means him. He's that's the right. only one who Absolutely. is able to. Yeah. Has the authority morally to cast sure. the stone. And when they leave, they're confessing that they are not morally competent to judge a woman caught in adultery with multiple witnesses. That's right. They're confessing to their own what. Immorality. That's exactly right. Adulterous yeah, immorality. One hundred percent. But it's interesting though because they're so they're so territorial that they, they, they don't want people believing in Jesus so that they don't lose their place. Uh -huh. You know, and then here you have um but they're being dispossessed of their place in heaven. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, you know, so just but what I'm saying is the, the parallels reading them together really creates a moment of reflection in our own hearts. Mm -hmm. Who am I? Am I the woman caught in adultery or am I the Pharisees? You know, the Bible is written to the needy. That's right. The ones who are self-aware enough to mm -hmm. recognize their own sin. And I think too, and I, then they need a savior. I think I think re reading it. You know, I always 
say, you know, to the church, you know, that where I pastor, I always say, read yourself into these stories. You know, read yourself, you know, as if you're the leper, if you're the woman caught, read yourself into these stories. And I think that, you know, when I read the story of the woman caught in adultery, um, I realize every time I read that, I am both the Pharisee and the woman caught in adultery. You know, um, and, and, and I, both of those tendencies are there, you know, and, and, and you, you, you realize, man, you really need Jesus to come along and say, hey, I forgive you because if it weren't for that action on his part, you know, reaching into our lives, we wouldn't, we wouldn't, the woman didn't, the woman may have known better. She, she may have been raised in, in the temple. She may, but, but the bottom line is what she needed was she needed that touch of grace that only God can give us. He's the only one who, you know, I think of in John 5, you know, the, the invalid, why does Jesus walk up to one? You know, I mean, yeah, he could have, he could have chosen other ones, but he, he, you know, and um, I, I think there is a very particularness to the way Jesus works. And I think it's important and incumbent upon us as Christians to realize that divine initiative, you know, that, because, you know, people are like, well, she didn't confess. She didn't do it. Jesus is for, I think there's, I think there's stuff there for us to think through. Paul will say that, you know, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but it was the, you know, incredible, overwhelming, you know, lavish love of God that, that, that shone into our hearts to give us, you know, the ability to, uh, to, to reach out to him. I, I think these are just powerful, really important themes for us to think about in our lives. I think it's important hermeneutically too. I mean, we're taking a little bit of time here, but I think it's useful. You know, when I read the gospels and Jesus come, the leper comes begging for healing mm. and it says Jesus reaches down and touches him. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. He's, virtue, that's he's right. venturing his own purity to That's do right. that. Leprosy is so corrosive and so it's such an emblem of sin and it led them to being outcasts and mm. they have to, you know, you know, sure. you know all the, the decay, the flesh rotting, the whole, yeah. whole realm of death. They're strangers and they're outcasts and I've never had leprosy. But on the other hand, if I can't read the text so that I can have the wonder of knowing that if I were the leper in some sense and Jesus, come, Jesus would come and touch me, I would look at him entirely differently, you see? And if I want to understand Jesus, I've got to be able to have right. imagination to identify with that particular illustration of sin. The same with a woman caught in adultery. Perhaps I've never actually done that, but Jesus says if you look after That's her, absolutely. you lust after her, you're just as guilty. Right. Now, I can identify with that to a certain extent, but sure. I can't, even if I by God's grace, have been preserved from some sins. I certainly haven't been preserved from all of them. Absolutely. And they are just as scarlet as any of the others in the Bible. And right. so, but the, but the point is not to run from that. I remember the woman that I, I one of the stories I really love in, in Luke 7, the, the, the woman of shame that comes to Jesus when he's at the banquet of Simon, who's judging him, you know, yeah. is this man really a prophet? And, and this woman comes in and, and and she's called a porn age. She's a whore. That's, mm -hmm. that's just what she is. But somehow she's encountered Jesus and his promise of forgiveness. And she just breaks down and, and uh, washes his feet, you mm -hmm. know, and with her tears. Yep. She, doesn't, she, doesn't, she didn't come planning that. She didn't have any equipment. So she, but she's weeping so copiously. And she washes his feet with her tears. And then she lets down her hair, which a woman would never mm -hmm. do. And that's her, that was her net your beautiful net by which you had entrapped men and, 
and she doesn't care anymore about her physical beauty because she's found the one who's truly spiritually beauty and beautiful. And so she, she dries his feet with, with, I, I realized from a long time ago that that's the whole, I think that's the holiest place in the New Testament. And I want to see Jesus through her eyes, mm-hmm. not Simon's eyes. Yeah. And, you know, if you see him through, if, if you identify with the, the broken and the captive and the ill and the, you know, the slave. There's this progressive um, attitude that's infiltrating the churches that, you know, oh, well, all these texts about the women and being whores and all this stuff are so, you know, shrouded in patriarchal society and everything else. No, no they're not. They were the marginalized of the day. And they're the stories that needed to be recorded because that was what was going on in that day to help you and me understand what it really means to understand who the Savior is. You know, and we've, 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 it's, it's, it's crazy to me. We will mangle up the text to argue about something that, that is not really as relevant to the text to make some issue or cultural comment or whatever else and miss. I mean, and, and, and for those that do that, you, you're, you're in, in some ways, you're, you're not completely like Simon, but you're missing the whole point of what's going on by interjecting in all this garbage. That the bottom line is, is that the people in the Bible, whether it was the leper, whether it was the woman, whether it was a whore, whether it was a slave, whatever, slave it, it, the, the, those were the people that were on the margins of society, and those are the people that Jesus came for. And if you can't see that you're on the margin of society and the economy of a holy and righteous God, there's no way you can ever understand what he's done for you and me. And it goes back to that Luke 18 passage. You either go, oh, look at those people over there. I'm not like that. I don't do that stuff or whatever. Or, you know, you you, you go, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And, you know, H.C.G. Moore said it, in my opinion, best. Um, he said, and I think this is just such a wonderful statement. Um, he said, you may be on a mountaintop and they may be in a but neither one of you can touch the sun. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that I think that when that is understood, that's the beauty of this. I mean, it, it, yes, the chiastic stuff is wonderful and, and seeing the common authorship and all of that's great. But I am so um, enthralled with when I read these two together, it forces me to really allow God to do surgery in here. That's why I'm so persuaded of of this is a great reading because it really does it, it hits at places that you wouldn't get maybe reading just one the way they echo each other really you know do you have a place here do you have a place there is there not going to be a place for you there how do you respond and it's in this whole context of a, a woman being i mean i don't know i think it's powerful you know and i think the hermeneutic that the the apostles are using is incredible the healing ministry of jesus i remember discovering every one of those stories is intended to right. point to Jesus' yes. own suffering and glory. And the first time I saw that, the one I puzzled over from the time I was just a boy was the healing of the blind man in Mark 8. When Jesus, they bring this poor blind man to Jesus, he's begging, the friends do, begging for a sight, and Jesus takes him out of the city and spits upon him. And I thought, I, I, that made no sense to me. I thought, because every in every culture of the world, spitting is a sign of contumacious reproach and, and contempt. Sure. And, you know, the saviors, and, and some of the commentaries were so lame, you know. Medicinal. medicinal. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 just 
are you kidding me? I mean, yeah. that's just, yeah. there was something involved in that. And it took me years. I was in seminary. I remember it, when I was in seminary, I got, I had an afternoon and I took, that occurred to me and I took all these commentaries. I knew the, I knew the best ones and I had a big library. And so took all the best commentaries on Mark, read, you know, trying to answer that question. Why did Jesus spit upon this poor man? And, and I, I went through all of them and most of them just ignored it, you know, like, you know, the blind man comes asking for a side spit on him or something. It's just, it was insane. And I remembered, and most of them ignored it. A few of them made these lame comments about, about uh, medicinal. And then, um, um, but, a, but a few of them, uh, and none of them had an answer to it. And when I shut the, the last commentary and I stacked, put it on a stack, I realized, I said something, I said almost out loud. I said, gosh, these guys are as blind as I am. And that was my clue when I recognized they're blind. And then I, you know, sometime later, I, I put it together. He's, he's, when Jesus is taken outside of the gate, it's when he is made to suffer. And when they take Jesus at his Jewish trial, they mock him, they blindfold him, mm -hmm. and then spit upon him. Right. And so, well, that's the clue then that the apostles are using for his healing ministry because. All of those are anticipating the sufferings he's going to take on himself. And on the strength of that, he can heal the man. So my eyes were open. The way that the, the apostles have written the text is these healing, healing aspects are really speaking to us. So my blindness, I, I read that and I couldn't understand it, but then my blindness was healed. And I did understand it. All of our healing, it's like, like Isaiah said, by his stripes, we are healed. And it's all that it opened up. The understanding of the whole healing ministry of Jesus. They are intended to heal us, this word. The man with the withered hand can be healed because Jesus's hand will be immobilized. When you, when you start to see these things, they, they, you start to go away. And, and, and I mean, and, and again, th this, is, this is, I think, at the end of the day, why we're doing this. We're saying, hey, we're not arrogant. We don't think we know it all. We, we don't think we've cornered the lot on theology or hermeneutics, but just passionately feel like there is a better way to read this than we've been reading it, you know, and, and some of that is reading Mark that way or reading Revelation the way we're reading. Um, we're just proffering it up. And, you know, whoever listens or hears this will we'll get to judge on their own. I think we often say that, uh, um, you know, the, the, the real telltale sign of when you're hearing something authentically is the Emmaus disciples says their hearts burned within them. You know, and, and what I find is, is that when people hear some of this stuff, they go, oh man. Then you hear the, the other side is when Jesus would teach, they would say, we've never heard anything like this. He's never you know, so and, and, seen it. Yes, and, and so I, I sometimes think that- Never heard anything the real, like this. The real gospel, when it's really presented, when Jesus is really presented, I think the response is usually their hearts are burning and they go, man, we've never heard anything like this. That is an epistemology, <laughs> and I think it's it's not a scientific epistemology, sure. but it's an authentic one. Yeah, I think absolutely. Well, um, let's look here. This is the uh, center here. We got the king being lifted up, the adversary cast down. Um, this is where we sort of hit the in the chiastic reading. We're coming to the center we're converging of that. Converging with the yeah. So we've got two patterns that yes. are converging here. And this is powerful, though. Let's in the Gospel twelve, beginning um, in twelve fifteen to fifteen and nineteen. The next day, a great multitude cried out, "Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel." Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, 
as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world is going after him. And that seems to correspond with 1210. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven. Now is the kingdom of our God. The authority of his Christ has come. And there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become those of the Lord and his Christ. That's clearly a climactic yes. moment, but it happens at the center. So. Yep. And then 12, 28 to 32, Father, Jesus prays, glorify your name. This is during the triumphal entry. Mm -hmm. And the voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by heard and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him. Some were hearing articulate yep. speech. Yep. Some were just hearing noise. Jesus answered and said, the voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. And he says it's a voice, mm -hmm. so which can mean both thunder and, sure. and articulate speech. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast down. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw people to myself. And being lifted up on the cross, he will draw and right. invite everybody. Mm -hmm. And then that corresponds in, in Revelation 12, 9 to 10. So the great dragon was cast down. The serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast down to the earth and his angels were cast down with him. Then I heard a voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down and there were thunderings and when the temple of God, then the temple of God was opened in heaven. And I think this is crucial is that we're saying that the chiastic axis is happening. Okay, Th that's one statement that we're making. But we're also saying in that literary axis, there's also the great reversal where Jesus is being lifted up and Satan is being cast down. That That, that is a whole nother, you know, I mean, it, it, it adds to the veracity of how we're reading. I mean, it, there's there's just a lot now, of stuff going on. is imitating yes. the form. Absolutely. Like, that's An illustration of that, yes. I think, that's very important is when Paul says, about Jesus, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. Right. And he's, he, that's a chiastic form. It is. And he's saying that in order to tell us, without stating it, he tells us where that transaction takes place. Yes. Where does that transaction take the place? Cross. The cross, yeah. yes. He was rich, he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. But he's, by the way he structures it, so, it's really, the language itself is iconic, and I think that's what the Orthodox people have understood better than anyone. Mm -hmm. The language itself is speaking, of course, they speak Greek, so that, <laughs> that's kind of a natural, but they're more aware of these sure. things. But the, the text itself is written iconic, sure. magnificent. No, and I, I just think that just what, what's going on here is, is uh, incredible. Well, um, moving into a section here that we'd label in John, the war of light and darkness on earth, into Revelation, the war of light and darkness in heaven. And I think there's some really great stuff here. John 8, 32, 34 through 36 says, the truth will set you free. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin and a slave does not abide in the house forever. If the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And then here we see the chiastic reading here in chapter 13, he the beast causes all both great, rich, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on the right hand or their forehead. So he's enslaving yes. people and Christ is setting Bring them free. Them. Absolutely. That's, that's yeah. contextually, uh, it's explaining another dimension of how exactly that, that transpires. Absolutely.
841 says, they, the religious leaders of the temple, said to him, we were not born of fornication. And of course, in chapter 14, verse 8 of Revelation, she, the whore of Babylon, has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And when they're saying that we weren't born of fornication, right. they're, they're basically saying Jesus is, That's exactly right. is guilty of fornication. Absolutely. As is the yeah, uh, well, it's the, the juxtaposition war. of this literature right. of the beast yeah. and Jesus, exactly. you know. Yeah, that too. But they're saying if they or the war, I'm sorry, the war about they're him. saying that he is guilty of being born of fornication, yes. which disables his title to rule as yeah. the son of David. Yeah, eight forty four. The devil speaks a lie, for he is a liar. And of course, in twelve nine, the devil deceives the whole world. You can see here this the the, the correspondence is just is once again. We, these could all be developed, but you know, we, we do have a certain limited time. We could spend a lot of time here. Nine sixteen. How can a man Jesus, who is a sinner, do such signs? And in thirteen thirteen, and he the beast performs great signs. Once again, this literary contrast of Jesus and the beast. What does that mean? What, what does that you know? Just just good stuff. How can Jesus do these signs? And they're saying he's a deceiver, and then the beast, who is a deceiver, yep. is able to perform great signs. That's right. The, the priests of Pharaoh who cast their That's rods right. and they become right. serpents. That's exactly so. right. In ten nineteen it says there was a division among the Jews. Many of them saying he has a demon. Others says these are not the words of one who has a demon. I always love that. Just can't just he's just messing them up. Um, in twelve seven it says war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. You see this uh, just juxtaposition here of of of, of, of challenging eleven fifty three. From that day on. The religious leaders of the temple plotted to kill him, Lazarus. And in 11.7 in Revelation, when they finish their testimony, the beast will kill them, the two witnesses. Interesting. I think what happened, I think this is telling you in the gospel, that is after they, after Christ was crucified, they went in that very short trip to Bethany across mm -hmm. the olives and, and then killed him. I think they, they put him to death. That's my guess. Yep. 12.28.29, a voice came from heaven, therefore the people who stood by it by and heard it, said that it had thundered. And in 10, three and four, 10 chapter three, verses three and four in Revelation, seven thunders uttered their voices and I heard a voice from heaven. Once again, just the correspondence is, is, is incredible. Um, in 13, 26 and 27, we see, so when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. And then in chapter 10, verses nine through 10 in Revelation, he says, take and eat. And it was in my mouth, sweet as honey. But when I had eaten it in my stomach, it was bitter. I think that text in John is so significant because at the supper, when Jesus gives the morsel, it's a sign he'd given to Peter and John. It says Satan entered into him. Now, remember in John 1, the word, the divine word had become flesh. Yes. Now the enemy, Satan, has incarnated himself in Judas. Mm -hmm. And the drama that that implies is, is overwhelming sure. because these two ancient spirits, the divine God and the arch enemy Satan, these ancient spirits were looking at each other, both of us through human eyes. Mm -hmm. The drama that's overwhelming to think about that, what windows these, and the, the drama at the supper. I mean, that's, yeah. And then he says, what you do, do quickly. And then that corresponds in Revelation to there should be no delay any longer. That's, again, it's just, it's just so interesting that these two things are parallel in this way. 1328 says, no one reclining at the table knew except John and Peter. And in chapter 10, verse 4 of Revelation, seal up the things which the seven thunders 
have spoken to John and do not write them. So this idea too of, you know, it's just, there's parallel. 14, one and two, let not your heart be troubled in my father's house or many dwelling places. And in 7.15, chapter seven, verse 15 and 17 of Revelation, he shall spread his tabernacle upon them and God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. That idea of tabernacle, you know, dwelling. Um, 14.6 of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 7.17 in Revelation, the lamb shall guide them. So here's this way and being guided. 14.23, if anyone loves me, my father will love him and we will come and make our abode with him. And 7.15, they serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle among them. Here's the promise of that, you know, if you love me, my father will come and we will make our abode. And here we have the consummation of it in heaven. Promise and, and fulfillment. Absolutely. 15.6 of John says they will gather the dried branches and cast them into the fire and they will be burned up. And then here we have in 8.7, chapter 8, verse 7 of Revelation, a third of the trees were burned up. Once again, the parallels here. 16.13, Jesus will send the spirit of truth who will guide you into all truth. And in Revelation 7.17, 7, the lamb will guide them to springs of living water. In 16.20, um, verse 20, 28, and 33, we're told that I, will, I tell you that you will weep, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. I'm going to the Father, take courage. I have overcome the world. And then you see in chapter five of Revelation verses four, five, and seven, and I began to weep greatly. And one of the elders said, stop weeping. The lion of Judah has overcome. And he came to the Father. Here, once again, here's the, here's the promise of, I'm gonna take care of you. And here's the fulfillment in heaven of the, of the very same thing. In 16 of John, verses 21 and 33, it says, when she's given birth, she no longer remembers the tribulation. In the world, you will have tribulation. We see in chapter seven, verse 14 of Revelation, these, the redeemed, are the ones who have come out of great tribulation. Once again, we, we live, and he says that in chapter one, he says that part of being in the kingdom in this world is part of is being in tribulation. We will be taken out of tribulation it, it, because, because God has redeemed us, but we will live in tribulation. We will live in, 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 in the world that we live in until that time that, that, he, that he redeems. Um, in 1633, these things I've spoken unto you that in me you may have peace. And in chapter six, verse four of Revelation, it was granted to the one who sat on it, the red horse, to take peace from the earth. So here, here's another juxtaposition of the red horse is taking peace from the earth, but it cannot take peace from the one that Jesus has given to. And, and, and that's, that's, it. that's super important for people to remember in today's world. Absolutely. You know, because there's a lot of stuff Chaos. going on. Absolutely. Chapter 17, we call this the prayer of the Savior on earth and the prayer of the saints in heaven. In 17 of John, verses 11, 13, Jesus says, um, Jesus being no, am no more in the world, um, I come to you. He's thinking about going to the, to, the, to the Father. In chapter five, verse seven of Revelation, and he, the lamb, came and he took it, the sealed book, out of the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. And of course, I love that parallel because he, we're eating it together. You realize that Jesus is saying, I'm coming back, but in his coming back, because of what he did, he's the only one worthy to, to open up everything, to take in, you know, and just a beautiful thing. And I think those seven, the seven seals, um, very emblematic, at a minimum emblematic of the seven wounds of Jesus. Yeah, he's you know? the book. Yeah, he's the book. He's the book This that is open in the seven, he's the only one worthy to die. That's right. That's the point of it. Yeah. And he takes the, the, seven, the seven seals, or the seven fatal wounds, bleeding wounds of Jesus. And then we're told to eat the book. 
and that becomes Eucharistic. I mean, you can see that the, the, yes. the imagination of John and his use of metaphor is unbelievable. 1712, I love this parallel. I have kept them whom you have given me and not one of them perished. This idea of the security that Jesus gives to his people in chapter six, verse 11, they were told they should rest a while until the number of their fellow servants should be completed. You can see, I mean, Jesus isn't losing anybody and everybody that's going to get there is going to get no, there. It, it's just, it, there's just a beautiful, yeah. And I think that once again, it goes back to, you know, that is a position Christian sometimes is a pastor. I, I get that all the time. How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know, you know, and the, the, the reality is, is if, you know, if you confess that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he's risen on the, you know, died on the cross and rose on the third day, um, I mean, pa Paul doesn't act like there's an uncertainty. He says, I'm confident of this very thing. He that began a work. And then uh, in chapter 17, verses 17 through 19, we, we read, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Um, and it's 611, how long, O Lord, holy and true. There's this sanctification, holiness, and true parallels. Um, chapter 18 of John, verses 3 and 6, then the cohort came with lamps and torches. When he said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Uh, this is great. Chapter 4, 5 and 6 and 10, seven lamps. There's the lamps, a burning fire before the throne, four of the living creatures full of eyes, in front and behind the 24 elders fall before him. Yeah, the rest of God on earth is corresponded to the worship of God in heaven. That's great, isn't it? Fabulous. <laughs> um, 18, 25, and 27, Peter denied it and said, I am not, but yet in heaven, 3, 8, you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Love the parallels there. 18, 37, for this cause, in, in John chapter 18, verse 37, for this cause I, Jesus, have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Chapter 3, verse 14 of Revelation, these things say the amen, the faithful and true witness. So again, the parallels are just, they're there to be seen. Um, chapter 18, verse 20, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple. And in chapter 3, verse 9 of Revelation, those are the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not. Um, I think that's, there's, there's that, just the parallels here. I hope people who are seeing this and listening to this just see that there's, you know, that there's words being used here. They're paralleling. In 19.2 of John, they clothed him in a purple garment. And in chapter 3, verse 5, the overcomer shall be clothed in white garments. I, I love the fact that Jesus, in his beating and in his being mocked as a king, is taking on what allows you and me to have those white garments. Exactly. You know, um, that's the great hope of Christianity, is that he can take away my sin. You know, um, and I mean, and we sing that song, what can take away my sin or what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that, that purple robe was stained in his blood because of the beating that he had. And they washed their robes in the blood to make them white. Yeah. Beautiful. 19, 2 and 5, the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns. Um, 210, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. He took the He's crown. being faithful to death yes. so that we can have the crown I know. of life. It's beautiful. Um, 1918, they crucified him with two other men and Jesus in the midst. And here we once again, the one who walks in the midst of the seven lampstands. That, 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 that phrase in the midst is just so Johannine in the gospel and in Revelation. It's like, you just got to pay attention if you're reading this. When you're saying, oh, these are just two different people or whatever. I'm sorry. Because it goes back to the garden. It does. And in the midst, in the midst of the garden are these two trees. They're just, put together. In the, and they come together I in know. the cross. Yes, and you have it in Revelation. I, I, 
just it seems like you, you got to be straining at gnats and swallowing camels not to see some of this stuff here. Um, the, in 1921 and 22, the Jews said to Pilate, do not write. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. I, Jesus, will not erase his name from the uh, book of life. I love that. 1929, 30, and 36, um, a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And then here we have in chapter 2, verse 26 and 27 of Revelation, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nation. They shall, they shall be broken like clay vessels, as I also receive from my fathers. From my father, that's great. I mean, here, here Jesus is being the promise that's even in the Old Testament that none of his bones will be broken, and, and yet because of his protection of the Father, th th those that have accused him wrongly and have killed him wrongly, and you think of Psalm two, why have the nations raged? The nations will be destroyed because he really is the the, the king. It's beautiful. And then in 1937, this is incredible because we're reading it chiastically, and it, they will see him whom they pierced. And chapter one, verse seven, they who pierced him will see him. Mm -hmm. That's it's a direct <laughs> quotation. He's ending and beginning, and that, so that's a focal point. I know. And what happens is the chiastic pattern. This is going to blow your mind. Well, it's anticipating, so we'll talk about what I found is the chiastic pattern that goes to um, the end of the gospel and then begins the, at, Revel, at the beginning of the revelation means that the chiastic pattern continues on through the other companion volume. So it becomes this giant omega pattern that goes through all of them. I only, mm -hmm. I only was able to trace it with one. I mean, the the chiastic pattern ends at the at the beginning and the end of, of sure, the sure. document, right? But if it has a companion document, it goes right through. Hmm. I mean, it, I call it the omega pattern. It's unbelievable that hmm. it would do such a thing. The mathematical modeling of this stuff is is really quite interesting. We need to talk about that. Yeah, and and I, and I mean, and I and I think I think you move you move beyond John or an amanuensis at that point. And you have to say, hold on, there, there was some superintending here. Because, I mean, where I do believe, that there's no question in antiquity that they could write chiastically and stuff. And I think they, they, they knew how to do that. It's funny, too, because people have asked me, they're like, well, you know, these, these gospel writers, they couldn't have known. Well, no, they used scribes, and these scribes were trained in writing. So, so, so there's, there's more. Like, we, we, we need to back up and, and realize how these books were put together and, and when we understand that and that God was superintending. When you put all that together, you can get... What we're what we're seeing here um, in chapter twenty, verse one of John, it says, "And on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came, and uh, and one ten of Revelation, and I, John, was in the spirit on the Lord's day." Twenty six through seven, Simon Peter saw the face cloth which had been on his head, and in one fourteen, his head and his hair were white like wool. This is again the, the correspondence. It, it, it's just it's there. Twenty um, nine. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. One eighteen of Revelation, Jesus, where he says, I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever more. In chapter 20, verse 14 of John, she, Mary Magdalene, turned around and behold, Jesus. One twelve and 13, I, John, turned to see and having turned, I saw one like the son of man. That would, I mean, they're just intersecting. You know, 20, 22, he, Jesus, breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. 
and in 2, 7, 11, 17, chapter 3, 6, 13, 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You want to finish this out? Go ahead. Yeah. Um, well, Jesus calling out to his disciples across the waters and the restoration of Peter corresponds to Jesus calling out to his seven churches across the water from Patmos. I mean, that's just not, that's just not coincidence. I mean, when, 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 when people are saying, I don't believe that this is the same author, the, the, the guy who records in 20, 21 of John that he calls out to Simon, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples, count them. That's he says seven. two others to make the count seven. I know. So Jesus is calling out to his seven disciples across the waters of Lake Tiberias. Yes. And then he's calling out from Patmos to his seven churches that are across the waters you know, of the Aegean Sea. That's right. So, I mean. It's just, it's, yeah. Because he spoke to the seven churches. This is beautiful. 21, four, but when the morning had come, Jesus stood up on the shore, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Chapter three, verse three of Revelation to Sardis, if you do not watch, I will, if you do not watch, I'll come to you and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. I mean, the language is just incredible. 21, seven of John, Simon Peter girded himself for he was naked. Chapter three, 18 of Revelation to Laodicea, clothe yourself lest the shame of your nakedness be revealed. 21, 13, Jesus took bread and gave it to them. In two, seven, to Ephesus, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. 21.14, this is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples. Chapter 1, verse 4 of Revelation, grace and peace from him who was, who is, who was, and who is to come. It's, uh, there's three, you know, things there. Um, 21.15, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? In 2.4 of Revelation to Ephesus, you've left your first love. 21.17, Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. 2.19, to Thyatira, Jesus, I, Jesus, know, or Jesus, I know your deeds and your love. And then 21.19, Jesus told Peter by what death he would glorify God. 2.10, to Smyrna, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you a crown. Okay. Yeah, the letters to the seven churches, the background to that is Peter's denials. Yes. And his falling. Yes. And but the Lord restores Peter, yes. and we see the failures. The, the seven churches are mm -hmm. failing, but the Lord is going to restore them. Yes. And just like he restored sure. Peter. Which, so is, which see, is comedic. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and then to finish out here, we have uh, the word and the testimony um, and the word and the testimony. Twenty twenty nine of John, blessed are they that believe. Um, and one three, blessed is the one who reads. Twenty twenty, twenty one twenty of John. The disciple whom Jesus loved, the one whom he leaned upon his breast. Um, in 1, 12 and 13, I and I, John saw his breast girded with a golden band. 21, 20 and 23 of John, Peter turning and saw following them, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple should not die till, till he comes. And then, you know, 1, 12 and 17, having turned, I, John saw, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 21, 24 of John, this is the disciple who testifies concerning these things. One and one, two, John, who testifies of these things. And then 21, 25, if they were written, the world would not contain the books. And in 111, what you see right in a book, you know, and I think that you read that together, the railroad correspondence, the chiastic correspondence, um, I think it's pretty overwhelming. And there are many other patterns. Yes. I've discovered. So these are, uh, the typology ties them together. Yeah. The themes, so the vocabulary. The themes, yeah. But they're um, different literary patterns, sure. different structures. I had no time to to actually go into those, but I found some of them. And I documented it at the end of my dissertation. Mm -hmm. 
as a guide to anyone that wanted to follow the different kinds of correspondence. I'm convinced that these were written, these two books were written. Um, you know, the commission to read is given to John in Revelation, what you see right in the book. Yep. And at the end of John, he says, these things I have written. Yeah. So the question is, you know, does he write John first or Revelation first? Well, I think formally he begins with Revelation and finishes with John. But I also think these books, for this kind of complexity, they had to be conceived in one moment of time. Yeah. Because all of the interlocking and, you know, chiasms and all of that, you couldn't possibly have put those together. You, you try to write a chiasm. If you put this in here to match this, you'll throw all the others. That's right. So I, th I think the, the books had to be conceived in one moment of time. Yeah. That was in the spirit. It's almost like the yeah. idea of, you know, all of matter was like the size <laughs> of a marble. That's right. And then it exploded. And then, yeah, yeah, I think something something was replicating yeah. that, it seems yeah. to me. And I think that, I think people that, you know, what I found is people that kick back against this type of stuff. And I'm not trying to be negative or snarky, but um, a lot of times they, uh, they're already convinced that the Bible is not the word of God, or they're already convinced in some sort of, uh, you know, way in which they think that, you know, th there's a built-in sort of lack of interwovenness, you know, but uh, um, to me, uh, I spend a lot of time with guys who do apologetics. To me, one of the great apologetics of everything is to see how well these things put together. It, it really is incredible. So hopefully the people who've listened at this point now have a pretty good background of some of the stuff, and we've got some Next session here, we'll have got some really cool stuff to, really to go through. Fascinating so, stuff. Yes. Sounds great. Awesome. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please make sure that you follow us and give us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts.